Yes, hello, folks. Welcome to a special episode of Beyond the Pitch. I'm your host, as always, Phil Perrin, and absolutely delighted to be joined. You never sent Mark Ogden from ESPN. It's been a while since I had Ogden on the show. Uh, he gets better looking, and I don't. What's happening? Uh, <laughs> I have, you have been up there much over the last two years, I see. Uh, but uh, how are you doing, mate? How's things? Yeah, I'm good. But yeah, it's been, um, been a long two years, you know, with lockdowns and COVID and playing mm. games in empty stadiums. It's not been much fun, to be honest. But, you know, listen, not, not just for me, but for everybody. And it's, uh, it's, uh, I think we're glad to get out of that, but obviously there's other situations elsewhere. So it's it's gone from one crisis to another at the moment, isn't it? So at least you've got football to, as a distraction because, you know, football's a great distraction if you're a Man United fan. Well, yeah, well, I have to say, in the early parts of COVID, now, whenever we didn't have football, I know it sounds stupid to people that don't, don't love the game. That's all right. We all find loving different things and find mean different things. I really did realise just how much it plays a part in your life and how much... Of an absence, you really notice it, uh, even when your team's playing yet, um, as, as we are. But uh, you know, there's a, 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 and of course, for you as a journalist, it's changed your job dramatically. You know, uh, you're uh, changed how you went to stadiums, how you attended mm-hmm. events, no tours on there. So, so much normality. What's the what's the story with this summer? Are you hearing teams are going to go on tour this summer? What are you hearing? Yeah, I think the usual suspects will go on tour. They haven't confirmed anything yet in terms of destinations but I think it's it's been fairly well reported that Liverpool and United look like they're going to go to the Far East which could be problematic because I think there's still a few issues in in various places Hong Kong for instance so that might be something they have to review I, th- I think Man City are looking towards North America but mm. I don't think anything's set in stone yet I don't think any, anything can be set in stone at the moment because there's so many issues you know hopefully we've seen the back of Covid in the sense that it was such a big problem, but you just don't know, do you? So yeah. I think everyone has to be careful. It's a shorter summer this year because of the World Cup, so they won't have the time to do three-week tours. Uh, and from my perspective, I think it's it's the Women's Euros in uh, in England, so that'll be me uh, in July. You know, we have to give that plenty of coverage. So mm-hmm. it's going to be a busy summer as usual. Yeah, it's great to see the Women's Euros. And I have to say, um, you know, the women's football... Um, it has to overcome a lot. It has to overcome the natural cynicism of a lot of men mm. um, who, you know, just have a really hard time accepting women in any capacity, whether it's in media, whether it's in commentating, whether it's legitimization of their sports, who feel the need to constantly put it down and seem to fear any type of equality. I mean, out here last week, we had a situation where the women received, accomplished a settlement with the US uh, Football Federation and as far as I'm concerned, uh, even if they get more money in the man or whatever, um, uh, get as much as you can. Uh, get Compensate ladies as much as you can. Compensate anyone as much as you can, whether it's men or women, it doesn't matter. Why do you think there's so much resentment from a lot of men against women's progress in sport in general? It's just it's just strange, Phil. I mean, I, I can't get my head around you know, the gender inequality in, in any work of life. And, and you know, if, if you're doing a job, it doesn't matter what your gender is I don't understand how anyone could pay you any differently you know it, it's such a it's something it's, it's from the dark ages in terms of you know where it comes from but um I was I was really surprised when I heard the story about the US women's national team the fact that they've only just been given parity because that's happened with the certainly the English FA in recent years certainly three or four years now but the thing with the US is now I, I had this discussion with people over here is that you know in the US the women's team are probably bigger stars than the men Mm-hmm. that the most successful team the bit you know you know Megan Rapinoe or people like that and you know Alex Morgan that the huge stars that they're probably as big as Christian Pulisic and Tyler Adams that that's how big they are so 
I was amazed that it took so long. And look, I think I think some football, some some male fans probably think, well, why should women get as many, as much as men? Because you know they don't play from the stadiums that men do. They don't have the TV deals. Now that's kind of a twisted argument because I don't, I don't think anyone's suggesting that women footballers should get four hundred thousand pound a week like some footballers do. But I, I, it's more a case of reflecting their contribution, their worth, and you know certainly when they play for the national teams, that is where there should be parity. I'm not arguing comparative for club teams because, as we say, Man City women's team play in a much smaller stadium, much smaller league than the men. But when it's a national team, there's no reason why they should be given different pay. Well, here's the thing, Ollie. You know, um, one of the other sports that I love, football, uh, boxing, and MMA, right? And in many ways, they have been pioneers in terms of promoting female sports. If you look at MMA, and they Ronda Rousey was a superstar. And you look at female MMA fighters, they have the respect of the combat sport community and arguably, you know, one of the most alpha males, if you want to call it that, uh, environment. Um, maybe that's the wrong words to use, but certainly a very heavy male-influenced uh, uh, sport that women rightfully have earned parity with men in terms of women are not having pay-per-view events. We're about to have in boxing, Katie Taylor, Amanda Serrano, the biggest female uh, boxing event in the history of the sport. Two females, two amazingly talented females headlining a pay-per-view event, being paid seven figures. And what is largely traditionally male. And I never thought I'd see combat sports lead the way when it comes to promoting female athletes. And also showing the legitimacy of whenever they get there, either just as big of an attraction as any man is. Uh, I, I don't understand why there's such a fear from a lot of men in promoting women's sports and constantly trying to denigrate it by highlighting every little mistake like, like it doesn't happen in men's sports. I've got two daughters, sorry for this long-winded question, but one of the things I've learned with these is how important representation is to them when they see women doing things on TV, even like uh, Disney movies that are, that are girl-orientated, how important that is. Um, I mean, surely... We're, we're at a point in our life where we realise how important representation is to people. Well, I mean, my daughter's into gymnastics and there's no bigger star in gymnastics than Simone Biles, you yeah. know, men or women. She, she's an absolute megastar and I think what, what a great role model she is. And right. I think, yeah, we, you know, you shouldn't need to have daughters to realise that women should be treated equally. I know. <laughs> I, I, it's just not something I can get, kind of get my head around anyone would think otherwise. You know, we've all got mothers, daughters, mm-hmm. wives, girlfriends. Well, why, why on earth would we suggest that they would be treated differently and valued differently it's like i say it's just it's just so out of date and even when it was you know the norm it shouldn't have been the norm but i think we've moved beyond that now i think whenever sports women can you know raise the bar in terms of of pay i think it it reflects well on society but you know there'll be some areas of life it'll never change unfortunately it's not just gender imbalance there's so many issues to address in society right now but it's uh you know, it's small steps. It's always mm. small steps, but at least these small steps are being taken. Agreed. And you need only look at a female journalist timeline to see the type of abuse that they take on a daily basis for just having an opinion on sports. Um, we know football and sports is a motive, but quite frankly, some of the stuff that comes back is despicable. Um, I want to ask you about Everton. Oh, we'll start their heavy defeat last night against Spurs. Um it seemed unthinkable to talk about Everton going down. You look at the team and there's, if ever there's been a team that says they're too good to go down, it's Everton. Uh, 
I still don't think they will. But what on earth is going on at that football club? Well, first off, the team isn't too good to get in. I think you could probably change that the club is too big to get in. I think it, that's, mm. that's probably the way to phrase it because that team definitely isn't too good to go down. But we've seen Leeds United have been relegated in the past and it, it, they took it 16 years to get back. Mm. We've seen Newcastle, Sheffield Wednesday, Man City, you know, big clubs, you know, as big as, if not bigger than Everton have gone down in recent years. Now, Everton have, have never been relegated from Premier League. I think they've, they're the longest serving top flight team, but... The club's an absolute mess, and it's the recruitment has been a disaster over the years, and it's I think it's catching up with them now. And I think, for me, Everton's recruitment was, was summed up by what happened in January. They certainly brought in Donny van der Beek and, and Deli Alley. Now, if you're in a relegation fight, you don't bring in players that are struggling for form elsewhere and struggling to you know re-establish their career. That you need people that are, are going to not not, not going to fight because I think Donny van der Beek and Deli Alley will fight in their own way. But you don't need players who are struggling for form and, and going to a club that's struggling for form. You need players that are ready to go. And I think that sums up Everton's recruitment that they were going for players like that. They, to be fair, and they're both in a similar position as well, you know, in a kind of attacking third of the pitch. So strange, but I mean, defensively against against Tottenham, they were absolutely terrible, absolutely awful. Jordan Pickford's got a mistake in him all the time. So when you've got a bad defence and a, and a goalkeeper that makes mistakes, you're going to be in trouble. And I think if you look at Everton's fixtures, They've got some very tough games coming up and they've got games against the teams at the top and the teams at the bottom, which, you know, are Everton capable of beating a Burnley when they need to or they're not going to, they're not going to beat a Liverpool. So they're in a mess and they're only a point of the bottom three. So they're really, really in it. Well, we talk about recruitment. So, you know, I feel sorry for Michelle, right? Because this is a guy to come in. He's provided the, the money for particular people, supposedly with expertise, to bring a football club on. Uh, he's given everything you could actually ask for at Everton. Uh, so where does the blame lie? Is it Marcel Brands? Is it, you know, Marcel Brands is gone now? You know, Rafa Benitez came in. He wasn't able to send any players at the beginning. Uh, so, you know, of course, we all know his conflict with Liverpool, Everton fans that really took to him. Uh, where does the blame lie? The blame lies everywhere. I, mean, I was told last summer that, Marcel Brands wanted Roberto Martinez back and apparently Martinez was, was open to coming back to Everton. But Mashiro just wanted Benitez, despite being told by people that it wouldn't be a great idea. Now, I, you know, I, I've got a lot of time for Rafa Benitez. I think mm-hmm. in his time he was a very good coach, but he's obviously not a coach for now. His, his best days were at least a decade ago. So you've got that. You've got a guy that's coaching it out in China, you know, not particularly at the peak of his powers. And obviously you got this situation where it was Liverpool's manager and he called Everton a small club. So yeah. you've got this toxic background and a guy that's coaching career has, you know, has been on the downward curve for a long time. So it, it, it was a strange appointment. And I, I'm not quite sure why Mishir was so keen to drive it through. And even Ancelotti, when they brought him in, if you look at the way it ended for Ancelotti, if he hadn't quit for Real Madrid, I think you probably would have been sacked anyway because the results curve was pretty bad. So Everton seemed to make, in many ways, they're like a... A less well-financed version of Man United, or oh, a smaller dude, version of Man United. <laughs> you know what I mean? They, 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 their mistakes have been the same. They mm-hmm, yeah. spent a lot of money, spent it on overpriced players, appointed the wrong managers, and they've got a history that is now proven to be a burden for the fans who demand more, but they're not in a place to deliver it. So, I, I think Everton, I mean, Everton suggested the ground as well doesn't help either because they've got they've got this situation now where. Goodison Park, great old ground, but it's, it's so past its sell-by date. And I think I was at the Derby game when they lost to Liverpool and uh, 
I've never been to such an angry ground. Mm. You could just sense the anger and the frustration amongst Everton fans, and that 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 affects the players. And and the, the performers, they, like they know that the first mistake, the crowd's going to get on the back, so they make mistakes. They try too hard. They, they then overcompensate by tackling too hard or fouling and giving yeah. fouls away. And it's it's just a it's just a, such a spiral of misery at Everton right now. You know, you talked about Everton didn't need Van der Beek and didn't need Deli Alley in the situation that they're in. Did they need Frank Lampard in the situation that they're in? Well, they probably needed him more than they needed some of the guys that were on that Nigeria list. Did they not I mean, need experience another... to get them out well, of the situation, the temporary situation? What he had was, at least he had the experience of managing the Premier League, but that, that shouldn't be the be-all and end-all. But, you know, sort of Fabio Cannavaro was, was interviewed for that job. Now, how does Fabio Cannavaro have the credentials to manage Everton. You know, Paolo Fonseca has always mentioned, and they had Pereira, who was very close to getting it, but then the, the Everton fans had a battle. The, the list of candidates wasn't great. The list of candidates were very strange for Club of Everton stature, and it, it, it obviously begs questions as to who's advising the owner, how many people he's got in his ear. He's not making the right decisions based on what he's, you know, what's in front of him. But I think Lampard was the best of what they had in front of them because he knows the division... He knows the squad, and I think, I think the fans have bought into him initially anyway because he's got a, a bit of positivity about him. So, but now that he's been found out as to this is this is when it gets tough. I, I remember when he took the job, I wrote a piece saying that if he thought Chelsea was tough, Chelsea's easy mm-hmm. man, compared to managing Everton. Yeah. At Chelsea, you've got every advantage you want. You've got a big squad. You're always backed by the owner. They're always competing. Yes, there's pressure to win, but it's the good pressure to win, isn't it? It's the pressure to win trophies. It's not the pressure to stay up or the pressure to avoid being hammered by Liverpool. It's, it's a good pressure. So Everton's a much tougher job than Lampard probably realised. And he's definitely in a relegation fight. Everton fans seem to also be quite angry at Bill Kenwright, um, where they don't want him at the football club anymore. Uh, from I may not understand this correctly, but they understand that they feel that he has an undue influence over a lot of what goes on at the football club. What is their exact issue with Bill Kenwright? Okay. Well, the one thing about Bill Kenwright, his heart's certainly in the right place. He's, mm-hmm. he's a dyed-in-the-wool Evertonian. You can't deny that. I, I just think that the Everton fans are frustrated because I think, you know, when he came in, he, he basically rescued the club from a, another unpopular owner. But he's probably been there too long. And I think all these popular owners ride in on a wave of popularity. I think Franny Lee was a similar one at Man City, but mm. it doesn't last long. You know, if, if results and success doesn't come, they they just become as tainted as the previous owner because they haven't brought the success. Now, football fans, by and large, are massively unrealistic wherever you go. They all think their team should be winning. They all think their team should be playing champagne football and signing the best players. It doesn't work like that. Only so many teams can win and only so many teams can play that way because they get the best players. So I just think Ken Wright's stayed too long and he's been tainted because he cares too much, really. And I think... I don't know why he's still there, to be honest. You know, he, he doesn't really have a say now. Mashiri's the man in charge. I, I think Ken Wright's there because he probably feels that he can have an influence and he can he can put across the the Evertonian viewpoint, what the fans really want. But I think he needs to get out, really, for his, his own sake and just to give Everton a chance to move on and take away... He's a lightning rod, isn't he, for a lot of the frustrations? Probably unfairly, I guess. It's hard to see why Everton want to keep him around, given that he is such a contentious figure amongst the fans. Uh, two other questions about Everton before we move on. They lost 5-0 against Spurs. You drew a parallel with Manchester United, and one of the parallels I will make, um, I feel for Everton fans, because 
there's a lot you can forgive as a fan. Like you can forgive players not being good enough. You can forgive players being off form. You can forgive a lot. But what you can't forgive is players not giving everything for the shirt. It's the one bare minimum you must give. Fans will be coming from all over the world to watch Everton, to be paying a fortune to watch Everton, um, to show up to watch players that can't bring themselves to play for 90 minutes. For whatever reason, they've convinced themselves that they don't need to do it. Uh, I'm not going to be here in the summer. They, he, he, he bothered me. He pissed me off. This guy, this guy. But to, to not give 100% uh, is unforgivable for me. Uh, if you were to dig certain players out or uh, explain why they're not committed, what, what do you see in that Everton team? Well, you look at someone like Seamus Coleman, who 100% gives everything every time he plays. Mm-hmm. And I think last night he was you know, exposed to being past his best but sure. you can't criticise Seamus Coleman for that because he gives everything on the pitch and mm-hmm. some of those around him don't and I think the problem nowadays is that a lot of a lot of footballers know that if it's not going well where they are they can get out pretty quickly because mm-hmm. their agent will get them out and there's no there's no sense of they don't need to be there they can be somewhere else and a lot of players that will just move through and drift along and you know I mean this is going back quite a long time but there, there, was, a, there was a point in history where players needed that next contract, they needed to perform, they needed to prove the worth because they needed to show that they, they could, you know, pay the mortgage or they mm-hmm. could pay the bills, pay the, the, the school fees, whatever. Nowadays, a footballer, a year into his contract, he's made for life. So he no longer has that pressure to to deliver and to perform. So if it's not going from a club he's at, he can just switch off and get on the phone to his agent and say, look, I'm not having it here, I don't like it, it rains too much, it's cold, the team's losing, can I go to Spain, can I go to France, wherever better quality of life, a bit more money, move it on. A lot of players don't need to be where they are. And that's the problem that they they know they can get a move somewhere else and just clock up another club and, and move on. And that the, the long serving players like the Coleman's, people like that, they're the ones that, you know, see what see it for what it is and they see that how the game has changed. You know, they see how, you know, Everton under David Moyes at least certainly we're always, you know, had this reputation of being a really strong squad, a really strong dressing room of tough, committed players, that's gone. But that's gone at most clubs. And the clubs that are winning, the, the players are only happy because they're winning. You know, I'd imagine if, um, you know, if you look at Man City, Liverpool, it, it must be great to play for those. You, you never hear any complaints of players that aren't playing because they know that they'll get a few games anyway, win a few trophies, get the win bonuses. Easy to play for clubs like that because you're always winning. It's tough to play for Everton when you're not winning and, you, and the, the fans are always on your back because they just want more. And they, they've had more in the past, but it's a long time ago now. I think, Ogie, there's also, there's there's certain versions. I think if Everton were doing what West Ham were doing, not expecting to win the league, but competing, um, Mm. I think most fans would be okay. Uh, You don't have to be doing what Liverpool are doing, don't have to be doing what City are doing. Lastly, I want to on everything. I want to ask you about Usmanov, because, of course, Lampard said, wasn't part of the interview process. He was on a call when he came in, Mm. disconnected. I don't know what his role is at Everton. I don't know how much he's responsible for the money that Everton are able to spend. Uh, but what's the situation now? Is that, it, it, with him being sanctioned, does that have any potential negative side effects for Everton? Well, nobody quite knows what his involvement is, and that, I think that's how he likes it, and that's how, yeah. how maybe Everton like it. Um, but they've lost his, his back in terms of sponsorship, so that will be an impact. And Everton is saying that it's not going to affect the ground move, but We'll see, won't we? We'll see, you know, the proof of the pudding is in the eating and we'll, we'll see how, how it has affected Everton going forward because very wealthy man, billionaire backer, close ties with Mashiri. Obviously, 
you know, you'd imagine it would be better to have his support than not. So we'll see. But I think one thing we can draw from the Usmanov situation is how many Arsenal fans right now be thanking their lucky stars that their campaign to get him to buy the club didn't succeed. Because if if Usmanov had managed to buy at the club before Cronkay, Arsenal would be in an absolute mess. They'd be in a bigger mess than Chelsea because Usmanov has been sanctioned and, and you know, had his assets frozen by the UK government. Can you imagine Arsenal in that situation? So Arsenal fans just think that, you know, sometimes it's very difficult to see the situation it is right now, but be careful what you wish for because it could have been a lot worse. I want to ask you about the Chelsea situation because I had uh, Grant Wall on the podcast last week who is quite a prominent US journalist and uh, was asking him about Todd Bowley, of course, who is heading up this uh, American Swiss consortium um, he also owns Dodgers out here, I believe. Um, and I was asking him what Chelsea fans should expect if he was successful in his takeover. And it's probably applies to any owner, but um, Chelsea are going to have to cut their cloth accordingly. Uh, I don't see any order coming in there except that a billion and a half losses. If you remember, Mark, uh, Peter Canyon came in there and said Chelsea would be self-sufficient within three years, which of course never actually happened. Regardless of what happens, are we seeing the end of Chelsea as a football club that buys at the top end of the market? No, this isn't the issue, really, the bigger issue here. But 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 let's talk about this in football terms. Are we seeing the end of Chelsea as a major force buying at the top end of the market? I, I think it is. And I think I don't think that this is the end of Chelsea as a as a top four, top six team. I, I do think if they get the right owners with a, a background in, you know, in sports, I think they have a chance. I mean, look, I mean, Liverpool have got American owners who obviously have a US franchise in, in baseball, they've been successful. So there is a way as an American owner to, and as a you know private equity fund to make it work. But it, obviously if you haven't got a wealthy individual putting money in and as Abramovich has, you know, 1.5 billion pounds worth of loans, then of course it becomes difficult. I mean, let, let's make the comparison between Chelsea and Man United. So if you average out what Abramovich has put in over 19 years in loans, it's, it's about 90 million pound a year. So it on top of whatever they're bringing in commercially. Now, the Glazers tend to take out around 70, 80 million pounds a year in dividends at least. So that's basically, you know, 160 million pounds swing in Chelsea's favour. Well, that's going to be taken away. That's not going to be there anymore. So that uplift that Bramwich gave them to bring in the players to pay the wages, it's not there. But Chelsea have got, I mean, I've been speaking to people who are trying to get people to, to buy the club and Chelsea is is a very, very appealing asset to a lot, a lot of people for many reasons. It's in London. Yes. It's London's most glamorous club. West London. Players want to play in London. They want to play for Chelsea. And there's a real opportunity there. Apparently, commercially, they're, they're way behind United. They haven't exploited their commercial revenue like United have. So there's, a, there's an opportunity there for, for Chelsea to maybe grow there by 60, 70 million pound a year, which could you know replace the environment money. And if they get a new stadium, now I've been told the new stadium obviously will cost at least a billion pounds. But rather than be a real issue for the new ones, it could be an, an opportunity that debt right now is very cheap. You know, they'll have to obviously have to borrow like United have done in the past under the Glazers, but it won't cost them the earth to build a stadium. And if they build a stadium, which is similar to Tottenham's, then they could have NFL games, they could have concerts, they could have boxing fights, they could have anything, they could have gigs. Chelsea could make that stadium pay. So Yes, I do think that without Abramovich there, with his billionaire safety net, it will it will impact them. But let's be honest, they haven't really been shopping at the top, top end of the market for a good six, seven years now. 
you know that I think Kai Havertz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that that was kind of a rarity, wasn't it? And I think they're not competing with the Man Cities. I mean, Man, Man Cities spend a lot of money on fifty six million pound players. You know, they mm-hmm. they don't sign hundred and fifty million pound players. But I, Chelsea have been there or thereabouts. But I do think that yes, it will change the way they are. But Chelsea is still a club to be reckoned with. But yes, it will obviously knock them down a peg or two in terms of where they can compete. You know, we talk about the stadium and, and what leads the life that may give them, but I heard the same with Arsenal. You know, Arsenal moving into this new stadium is mm. going to provide them with the resources to be able to compete. I heard the same with Spurs. Spurs moving into this new stadium is going to provide the resources for them to be able to compete. It never actually translates no. into that. So it, it certainly, you know, it's true. It, so the, it, it, you know, it doesn't doesn't quite work out, does it? Yeah. Because they've always got to pay for the debt. They've got to pay for the same. Mm. And you're right that it would cost. But I think certainly Arsenal borrowed at a time when it was, you know, expensive and it kind of coincided a couple of years later with the the, the, the credit crisis. So mm. they they were always kind of catching up. I think I think times have changed now. I think that certainly stadium building has moved on a lot in the last 15 years. Tottenham at some point will get a naming right sponsor. But if, you know, if, if, you're, if you're a company right now and you're thinking, I wouldn't mind spending... Eighty million pound a year to sponsor a stadium. If Chelsea have a stadium like Tottenham's, you're going to sponsor Chelsea. You're not going to sponsor Tottenham because Chelsea are a bigger club. Chelsea are a, a bigger brand. They're a global recognised club. So I think Chelsea have advantages, but they may find themselves becoming a bit like United in the sense that they're owned by people that will look at the dividend, will run it as a business, will sweat the brand. No longer being a, a rich man's plaything, but. Chelsea will always be there thereabouts because they are a brand which over the last 20 years has built them into a, a globally recognised club. When I want to ask you about uh, Manchester United because um, <clears throat> it's been a difficult few days. Um, Manchester United, of course. It's always lost. a difficult few days. For yeah, them. well, Come on, let's it's been it, a difficult, difficult nine years, I should say. <laughs> uh, but uh, it seemed after a defeat against Manchester City, um, which, quite frankly, the only thing to walk away from, regardless of the scoring, was the chasm between United and City has never been bigger than any time during the last nine years, in my opinion. This is part of my concern, is that talk about the current, you know, Richard Arnold and Edward Wood and everything. Richard Arnold and Edward Wood has been the second most senior employee at the football club for the last nine years. So clearly he's been instrumental in what United find themselves. The last nine years... The kindest word I could find is an aptitude. Um, a billion pounds spent, and yet Manchester United are further away from Manchester City and Liverpool than what they've ever been during the last nine years. It's a football club going backwards, not forwards. Uh, I can't think of a single thing they've got right over the last nine years, yet these are the same people that are telling us they know how to fix it. I don't even know if they know the mistakes they're making to be able to fix the mistakes. Uh, what on earth is going on at that football club? I mean, when, when did they sign Juan Bissaka and Maguire? I forget now. It's, it's, it seems to have been a blur the last uh, couple of years. But when, when, they signed, when they signed Maguire and Juan Bissaka, we were told that that was, when, that was after they had, you know, 18. rebuilt and redrawn the recruitment policy that they were, yeah. all the mistakes of the past were over. I mean, Aaron Wan Bissaka. I think it was, was, 18, I think it was yeah. I think it was 18, 19, yeah. somewhere. Yeah. I mean, we were told that Juan Bissaka was on a list of 804 right backs and he was mm. the best one out of it. So, I mean, this is just. At the time, I thought that was just a lot, a lot of nonsense. That was that was a sign of weakness and stupidity by United, rather than a sign of their, you know, 
diligence analyzing the players. You, you, you should know the best four or five right backs in the world. Mm. And you shouldn't you shouldn't look in at 804. And I think that the problem is that this is the situation they face with the manager now because I've been told it's going to be an extremely thorough process to find yeah, a new manager. I, yeah. I mean, let's be honest, if you've got the right people at the, at the club, they'll tell you the one, two and three, we get one of these. I, I don't think Man City would have had a an extensive process to decide whether Pep Guardiola was the next guy in. Now, maybe that was an easy one to do because it was Pep Guardiola, but if you're working at Man United, you must know that, right, Mauricio Pochettino, yeah, got the credentials. Luis Enrique, yeah, got the credentials. Under contract with Spain, but yeah, you know, decent. And maybe Eric Ten Hag. I'm, I'm not sure about Ten Hag. I think the guy who's 52 now, he's never managing a top league. He's managing, a, he's never managed the top players. I think it's a, it, it, a big gamble. I think he could be the next big thing, but you don't turn it for the next big thing when you're in your 50s, do you? And I do worry that it might be a bit of a David Moyes in the sense that reputation at a club that's, you know, beneath the top level. Go to a big club like United and the rabbit in the headlights comes to mind. Um, and you've got to convince the players. And would Eric Ten Hag convince a, a group of players that have, you know, chewed up and spat out quite a few managers at United? But it's difficult to know where to start. I mean, where I would start is... Whoever they get as the manager, he has to be the biggest personality at the club and he has to be given his head in the sense that he can make the big decisions. So let's say, for instance, Marcus Rashford. You know, who knows who wants to leave? Maybe he does. I'm sure there are days when Marcus Rashford wants to leave. I'm sure there are days when Man United thinks he probably should sell him. But I worry that if a football manager comes in and makes that decision, that the club will say, mm, commercially, it'd be a bad idea for us. You know, Marcus is one of our biggest commercial brands. If, if the manager comes in and thinks that Rashford should go, he should be sold. You know, when Ferguson came in, he got rid of McGrath and Whiteside. We've gone back a long time now, and this is, you know, different times. But it's a comparison to make that sometimes you have to make the big call and get rid of the big stars. And that would set the tone and, and show that this guy's in charge. I don't think any of the managers that have been in at the club since Fergie left have actually been allowed to be in charge. Even Mourinho. I always got the sense that he was frustrated by instructions from above or restrictions from above. Same with Van Gaal. I'm glad Van Gaal wasn't given, you know, full control, to be honest. But I think the next guy has to be Jurgen Klopp and Pep Guardiola. They are the, the biggest personalities at the football club by a long way. They don't make a decision on all the players, but they'll have the, they'll have the final say on the players that should stay or go. And I think that's where it should be with the new guy coming in. And I think that would be a change from what's been in the past. I don't think Solskjaer had that power. And I think... I may be going a bit of a rant and a bit off a bit of a tangent, but I think that the situation we're seeing now is basically down at Oli Solskjaer's feet. I think a lot of the fans have got a bit of a blind spot with Solskjaer in the sense that, you know, he knew the club and he's a great legend and this, that, and the other. He oversaw a regime that was just far too soft and, mm. and forgiving of players that were up to it, that weren't performing, you know, giving people contracts that didn't deserve the contracts, you know, why did Juan Mata get a contract last summer? It was obvious that he was not going to play. He didn't play last season. So I think Solskjaer has, in his time, allowed this softness to creep in. Mm. And we see it now where players, you know, the last 20 minutes of a derby defeat against Man City or I guess a 5 0 defeat against Liverpool are strolling around, pointing the finger at the teammates, blaming others, sulking. Next couple of days, putting up these crappy messages on mm. social media saying, I oh, will try better next time. And sorry, guys. <laughs> I mean, that for me is because Solskjaer let it drop to the point because, it, you know, Mourinho was a bit tough on the players and they didn't like Mourinho, but Solskjaer was far, far too far to the way. And I think the problem is that I think United are paying a big price for that now. 
Here's the thing, okay. <clears throat> They've tried it all. They've tried the hard guy, the tough guy approach. Yeah. They've tried the nice guy approach, right? And you're quite right in saying when Ferguson left at Parga, you served upstairs. Yeah. And they tried to modernize the football club and they said, well, if you look around at all of our competitors, you know, they've adjusted to a three-year manager. It's really essentially a coach with recruitment department. So we don't have revolution. They have evolution and that uh, this is how it needs to be. Sometimes I agree with that. Okay. Because you needed an but, but at the same time, they're trying to emulate another Ferguson with Moyes and getting another 25-year mm. tenure manager that uh, doesn't ruffle feathers like that, right? <clears throat> the, the, so they got lucky in the sense with Ferguson's genius time and also in the sense that, um, you know, City hadn't peaked yet and what have you, the Guardiola time hadn't happened. Um, but um, I just hope whoever United are interviewing is interviewing United as much as they're interviewing him. Because if not... And if commitments aren't made for Manchester United to resemble a football club, not a company football team, um, then I don't care if you bring in Pochettino and Ten Hag at the same time. Right? This is not going to work for exactly the same reason because there's enabling going on above the manager that's creating the environment in the dressing room that's telling players there is no consequence for behaving like this. Right? That's telling players... Your commercial value is worth more to me than your sport and value. It's telling players, I don't care if you're the worst player in the league. If you sell shirts and some merchandise, you get a contract here, right? And higher players incentivize, certainly, you know, that's a concern. So I look at United and I think that it doesn't matter, similar to Chelsea, it doesn't matter what approach you have as a manager. When you don't have, you have soft power, you don't have authority to discipline players. If you go to a player like Ralph Rangnick's sister player, you're, I'm kicking you out at the end of the season. Oh, actually, you'll be gone before I will, right? It's very difficult to get people to bend to your will when they don't want to do something, when um, there is no threat to them. Um, so I, lo- I look at this and I think to Manchester, can they possibly thread this needle between having such a focus, a monotropic relationship with profit above all else, uh, but also be a football club. Because if you look at club, one of the things you've got all those players working towards a common goal. Every single one of them is buying into what club wants to do. Liverpool have decided that we're going to be successful commercially by by, by uh, what we do on the pitch, not what we do off the pitch. And everything's geared towards that. Uh, then that's a football club. It's a team. Everyone works towards the same goal. But Manchester United, and we've got Richard Arnold on record saying this, 16 George Clooney's, right? Yeah. I was in the room when he said it. I was in the room when he said it. It 25 George Clooney's. All right, 25 George Clooney's, right? So that tells you everything about what Manchester United see their players Mm. as. 25 brands. Ronaldo is bigger than Watford as a brand, right? So when they lose, they don't win as a team. They don't lose as a team. Mm. They lose as individuals, right? Because not my fault, not my clan's fault, not my clan's fault. How on earth can you foster mm-hmm. an environment of collective buy-in when you have this? And so, from my opinion, for anything to change at Manchester United, that's the first thing that has to change, is that they have yeah. to accept that this is a football club. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I can't criticise United for 
you know, exploiting the commercial revenue because everything does it now. But I think the problem, you know, one one problem that United have, and it's it's kind of unavoidable, is that every three months they have to do a kind of an earnings call Mm -hmm. uh, because they're listed on the New York Stock Exchange. And it means that people like Richard Arnold and similar talk about what a great three months they've had in terms of social media engagements. Mm -hmm. And I think... I wish sometimes they wouldn't go into all that stuff because it just makes them sound ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody ca- you don't get a trophy for social media engagements. And if you did, I don't think anyone would want to be lifting it because it's, it's embarrassing. It's a football team, not, mm-hmm. you know, not a, a social media uh, giant. But it, it's um, it, it, it's difficult, isn't it? And it's, yeah, I mean, I've been writing about United for so long now, and the good times and the bad. And it's, it, it, it's quite... Um, it's quite depressing at times to go to watch United because you, you go there and, you, you know, I, I'm looking at Anfield, I go to City, I go to games in Europe and certain grounds like Anfield, are, you know, in Tottenham and, and Chelsea, you get there's a sense of uplift. You know, the, the, you feel you're surrounded by clubs that are, are on the way up or they want to do things on, you know, that. but you go at United, the ground is tired. The, you know, the ground hasn't been touched for 20 years. The roof leaks. Mm-hmm. It just, you know, the fans are, you know, expected to buy their halftime pie and drinking dark, dingy kind of mm-hmm. concourses where you go to Liverpool and City, the bright and their area, the, you know, the thoughtful, you know, you've got a City before the game, City got a great pre-match build, they've got a DJ, they've got, and you know, a lot of older fans will think, well, what's that going to do with it? But they get the atmosphere going. You've got United to turn the music off because I know that the fans wanted to build the atmosphere, but guys, wherever you go in Europe now, the Champions League games, you've got PSG, you've got Real Madrid, you've got Bayern Munich, they really get the, the noise pumping before the game through the it's what they do. And United are, are turning the music off. It kind of it's a bit of a metaphor for Man United that that they're so paranoid about what the fans think that they bend over battles to do things that are wrong. You know, you turn the music off and oh, it's just an awful atmosphere. Everything about the club needs looking at and, and starting again and just thinking people might not want us to modernise in certain aspects, but you have to modernise. You can't keep banging on about Fergie. Everywhere you look at Man United, there's a Fergie statue, there's a Fergie oh, banner. Oh. There's, I take the banners down, and I, I know it's the club's history, but the history is now becoming um, suffocating. Everything, everything is drawn back to Fergie. Now, that'll never change, but when you've got reminders at every game where the players are looking up and they only see banners to old players. Mm-hmm. They don't see banners to, to new players and they don't hear songs, apart from the Alanga song, they don't hear songs about the new team. Great, you know, let's sing about Ruud van Nistelrooy, Yap Starman, Roy Keane. But not when the current team play. Imagine what that makes the current team think. And people say, well, they don't deserve our backing because they're not playing very well. But it just seems like a club that's wallowing in the past, every aspect, and the fans too. It isn't just a club, it's the fans as well. And the fans have got a part to play in this. They have to start looking for it. They keep hanging on their scout... They'll say, all oh, the Scousers live in the past. Yeah. Man United live in the past. Of course. But this is also perpetuated by the club because they're constant. There's nothing in the present to celebrate. So they're prostituting the past they had no part of to commercialise it and market it and, 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 of course, trade off it. And, yes, I completely agree. Um, last question on Manchester United. Um, serious concerns about what they do this summer. Uh, I know you got to run here in a minute, so I won't keep you too long. But um, what, what, what happens this summer? I mean, I, I looked at the squad the other day and, and and thought, you know, which which who's going, who's staying, and there's already, you know, Lingard, Pogba, Mata, and there's one Cavani. other Cavani, Cavani mm-hmm. out of contract, gone. Then you got the likes of um, Martial, Van der Beek. Well, Martial and Van der Beek are out on loan, so they come back probably because 
you know, I don't think Seville will, Seville will take Martial. So you've got, they might go. If they go as well, that's six. Rashford's not happy at Ronaldo. Can't see Ronaldo staying. All of a sudden, you've got six, seven, eight players that, that are going to be leaving. And how do you place them when, you know, you need to be adding to your squad, not not replacing, not filling holes that have been created. So I, I just, I think that talk of Declan Rice and Jude Bellingham, it's just fantasy. Oh, they go to Man sure United is. right now. Sure why, why on earth would they risk, you know, risk doing what David De Gea has done pretty much and waste his career at United? I feel sorry for De Gea. He's had 10 years there and he's pretty wasted his career because he went there when the club were in Champions League finals and winning titles in the last seven, eight years. He's been playing the season, what, five, six times and mm. that says everything. I, I, You know, he probably should have got that. It would have been better for him if he went to Real Madrid when he could have, when he had the chance. Paul Pogba's wasted his career at United and it, as much as he's let United down at times, they've let him down by not building a team, bringing the players in that, you know, he needs to play with. So, but, you know, he's a big commercial brand and he's paid his way that way. So it's it's, it's a multi-layered problem at United. And, you know, in an ideal world, they take a whole year off and come back in 2023 and having ripped it up and started again, but that doesn't work. You can't have that. So they're going to have to um, do it the hard way and, and suffer a bit more. But, you just need to make progress and, and make sure that the players that they sign are the right ones because they haven't been the right ones. I, I can't think of a player that Man United have signed in certainly, well, post Ferguson, I guess, that's actually become a better player at the club. Maybe no. maybe Bruno Fernandes, but his form has dips in recent months. But, you know, all right, if, if it's not a player that's improved, a player that's gone up in value, and I think Fernandes is probably, again, the only one, but the rest, the rest have been bad buys that have become worse players and less valuable players. Well, it's not just the players they buy. How many players develop into and fulfil their potential? You know, I mean, we even we see this with young players too. Uh, I want to ask you quickly about Liverpool City before you go. Uh, Liverpool City, uh, fantastic. Pep Guardiola said Liverpool are his finest ever opponent. Uh, it kills me to say this through good of teeth because obviously no matter fan, but they are so, so, so good, both of them. Uh, who do you fancy for the table this year? Um, I think Liverpool are a better team to watch. I think Liverpool are a more exciting team and they take more risks and they've just got a bit more flair. I think I think City are just a, a just a machine, really. And I think sometimes it, they win too easy and I think the, the way they play is not as exciting. It, it, they, they almost like, they're like a boa constrictor, aren't they? They just kill teams that way by their passing. And I think I'd, I'd rather watch Liverpool than City. Mm. And I think, I think Liverpool have got a few issues in terms of defensively. But I, do you know something? I, I think Liverpool could win the league. I, I think Liverpool will go to City and win. Mm. And I think, I'm sorry, United fans, but I think Liverpool could win everything. And, and I think the Champions League, I will always back Liverpool in the Champions League because mm-hmm. they just have this this strange relationship with the tournament. Anfield is a massive advantage in their favour. Yeah. Again, you know. People who, and I'm not a Liverpool fan, as you know, but people who aren't Liverpool fans, they, they think that it's a cliche that it's just, you know, playing to the romanticism of Liverpool and the Anfield. But if you've got Anfield on a Champions League night, it's it's mm-hmm. immense. And I think it it makes their players play like like a team of 12, 13 men. I don't think, not maybe it doesn't intimidate the opposition, but it, it makes Liverpool players just right. grow. So I think they've got every advantage in their favour. They've got some brilliant attacking players. Maybe City will win the FA Cup, but ultimately the Champions League the FA Cup and the Premier League are going to be won by Man City or Liverpool I, I, I think yeah. that 
is something that United fans are going to have to swallow. No, of course, I suppose. Of course, that, I suppose that the, it'd suit them if uh, if neither won the treble or a quadruple. But you know, United aren't able to affect any of that. So sit back and watch, unfortunately, because if your team can't affect it, then you just can't complain if the teams win. No, listen, the level is exceptional. And I would have to say, as much as it kills me to say, is Liverpool are there through genuine merit, on merit. Um, they, they've, they've earned it. They've bought well. They've coached well. They've been fantastic. Uh, City, a bit of doping, but nonetheless, um, financial doping, but nonetheless, you have to hand it to them. Mark, uh, as always, mate, an absolute pleasure. Thanks for taking the time to do this. Uh, you've been so generous with your time. I would love to get you back again really soon. I wish you all the best, mate, and hopefully catch you, catch you soon if you come out in the summer. Take it easy, mate. Yeah, cheers, Phil. Thanks, mate. Thanks, mate. Bye. Bye.